Welcome to Business Brief, Missouri Business Alert's podcast focused on the news and issues shaping the state. In this episode, we examine the pay-to-play nature of club volleyball and how it determines players' access to college programs. Then we look at a mid-Missouri ice cream producer that is starting to develop a national footprint. My name is DC Benincasa. My co-host Ian Laird is once again next to me. How are you doing this week? Well, I was doing pretty good until the Seahawks decided it was time to move on from Russell Wilson and Bobby Wagner. Yeah, that's pretty rough, but I've seen a lot of bad off seasons as a Browns fan, so I think things will start to things will start to improve. Don't worry. Excited for the team to have a fresh start though. I guess. It's the end of an era that was happening as I was growing up, so I'm feeling some weird parallels between the end of that as I'm approaching the end of my time as a student. Yep, I can definitely understand that. Let's see if burying yourself in work can take that off your mind. What's up first for headlines? Gas prices continue to rise as the U.S. continued to escalate sanctions against Russia in response to their invasion of Ukraine. In the latest round of economic punishments doled out against Russia, President Joe Biden announced a ban on the purchase of Russian crude oil Tuesday. Prices at the pump had already increased dramatically across the country since the invasion, and the belief is further sanctions will likely exacerbate the issue. In Missouri, gas prices averaged $3.80 a gallon on Tuesday, a 45-cent increase from the previous week, but still below the national average of $4.25. Missouri Governor Mike Parson and the First Lady are traveling abroad for the first time in over two years. The couple was scheduled to visit England and Ireland to try to drum up investment and promote trade opportunities in Missouri. Parson previously traveled to France, Germany, Switzerland, and Australia, but he hasn't been on a state trade trip since 2019 due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Town & Country-based company Precoat Metals is set to be sold for nearly $1.3 billion. The largest metal coil coder in North America, Precoat, employs 1,100 people and operates 13 production facilities, three of which are in the St. Louis region. One of those plants in Granite City started a 53,000-square-foot expansion last fall a more than 50% increase on the previous size of the plant to meet increased demand. In 2021, Precoat generated about $700 million in revenue. Lastly, a bill has passed the Missouri House that would require local governments to pay for electric vehicle charging stations if they pass ordinances making them mandatory in new buildings. Last year, St. Louis County passed a law requiring new buildings to have charging stations and buildings undergoing renovations to install them. The share of electric vehicles in the state is expected to climb rapidly, with St. Louis officials estimating 30% of cars in the region could be electric by 2030. The lack of infrastructure supporting electric vehicles is a major deterrent, though, and the current gap between the number of charging stations that are needed in the state is one of the more prominent shortcomings. The bill now moves on to the Missouri Senate. We are once again starting with sports for the second week in a row. This time, we will be looking at the financial burden youth sports can place on families through the example of girls' volleyball. Volleyball was the fastest-growing sport in the U.S. for girls from 2010 to 2018, according to the National Association of State High School Federations. I know there's different league formats for most sports. Usually you have your local rec leagues and travel teams. What does the environment look like for girls' volleyball? Well, many girls play on a club volleyball team. This gives them more exposure to college coaches, but it often requires a significant investment. Okay, so there's some sort of trade-off that they're having to consider? Exactly. 
Players and their families are often paying a high number of fees and also have to account for travel and registration costs. This means it is up to the players to weigh the benefits of accessing connections to college programs and scouts with the financial costs they will have to take on. Reporter Emily Hood has more. Between the whistles, serves, and cheers. Players say the energy inside a club volleyball tournament is electric. It's almost like you enter like another world. Like I feel like time like just like kind of stops near there. That's Molly Musick, who plays volleyball for the Rockwood Thunder Volleyball Club in the St. Louis area. Players travel to tournaments all around the country as often as five times per year. Many have hopes of getting in front of college coaches. But for parents like Mary Savakul, playing club volleyball represents a significant financial commitment. It's just a lot of time and money, and I think most of us parents are like, okay, this has gone <laughs> a little far, but you don't know how to dial back. In addition to travel costs, many club volleyball teams charge fees for facility costs, coaching salaries, and equipment. These yearly fees range from $1,200 to as much as $3,000, depending on the team, club, and location. In addition to club fees, parents also pay for travel expenses like flights, hotels, and meal plans. For three-day tournaments, some parents say they've paid as much as $3,000. As cost-affordable as we try to make club, you still just don't realize how much goes into it in terms of travel and hotel costs and things like that. That, you know, you just really have to understand at the end of the day. And, and what we want our parents to know is all of this stuff is worth it if it gets your daughter the chance to receive a scholarship in college. That's Coleman Lee, the club director of 417 Juniors Columbia. Lee's club and others work to connect athletes with college coaches by competing in top tournaments. Garrett Case, the head volleyball coach at William Woods University, said that the pay-to-play system provides advantages for girls seeking to get recruited. I know as a college coach myself, I don't go sit at high school games to recruit. I go to club tournaments to recruit, and that's how majority of the colleges are. They want to go to a club tournament, see you play at a high level, and then see if that can translate to college because high school volleyball can be super hit or miss. Many clubs do offer ways to offset costs, providing opportunities for girls to work at facilities, fundraise, or receive financial assistance to play. However, fundraising options can vary between clubs and teams and may not cover the cost of an entire season. For parents like Ken Lane, who has two daughters that play club volleyball, the sport represents a large investment for his family. It's a sacrifice as far as financially, but going into it, you just, you, you know, at the beginning of the season, it's going to be expensive. Um, you have to be ready for that. Athletes like Audrey Savakul say club volleyball means more than just the money and travel. Even though it sounds cliche, like when you not only travel with people, we go to team dinners, we cry on the court together, we sweat on the court together, sometimes we even bleed on the court together. It's like you have this relationship that you would never have otherwise, and it's almost even better than just a normal friendship that you built because of how long it lasts and how many things you go through. We will be back with more Business Brief after this quick break. Are you feeling stuck in your entrepreneurship journey? The Columbia Entrepreneurship Alliance can help. Our new Ask Us Anything portal is a way for new and aspiring business owners to ask questions to our community's experts and experienced entrepreneurs 
Ask any business-related question for free through video, audio, or text. Visit startmo.biz, that's startmo.biz, for more information. We look forward to helping you get started and thrive in your entrepreneurship journey. For our second story, we are turning to a local ice cream business that has continued to expand during the pandemic. Still a bit cold for ice cream right now, but I can't wait until we get some warmer weather. Where could I go to find this place? The ice cream factory was founded in 2019 in Eldon, a city of less than 5,000 people in between the Lake of the Ozarks and Jefferson City. You mentioned it has been expanding into short history. What has that process been like? After an initial run of success that led to the opening of a second location in Jefferson City, COVID hit. A quick business pivot allowed the company to keep going, though, and now demand has grown so much they need to open another production plant. Cully Daruk has more on how this family-owned business managed to put its product in over 1,200 stores during a time when many other businesses faltered. Hello! Welcome to the Ice Cream Factory! With a cheerful greeting and a smile, An employee welcomes customers as they enter the ice cream factory in Eldon, which is 30 miles southwest of Jefferson City. Colorful t-shirts hang on a rack for sale, and an oversized gumball machine stands in the corner, dispensing inch-sized gumballs for a quarter. Less than four years ago, this building that was once a Kraft Foods cheese factory was derelict and condemned. But Shannon and Katie Imler had a vision for the 14,000-square-foot facility, which they personally implemented room by room. The husband and wife duo grew up in Eldon and are passionate about breathing new life into old buildings in the community. So um, I actually have a picture of Katie and I, like, standing in here with, you know, everything was just completely gutted and gone. And so every three or four months, we'll do a little more work, we'll do a little more work until we finally kind of got out where we wanted it to. The business launched in April 2019 and had just opened its second location in Jefferson City in early 2020 when the pandemic threw them a curveball. In in March of 2020, we lost all of our wholesale business at that time. Our two company-owned scoop shops basically, you know, had no business whatsoever. Without skipping a beat, the Emlers pivoted their firm's focus towards placing products in essential businesses first in Missouri and then neighboring states. Currently, the ice cream factory's frozen treats can be found in 16 states and over 1,200 retail stores. And I personally went to grocery stores and convenience stores across the Midwest and talked to every manager or owner that I could possibly talk to and asked them to purchase their ice cream. The company boomed, so much so that it has outgrown its production facility at the Eldon location. The Emlers were on the lookout for their next location when they found a former dairy plant in Lebanon, which is about an hour south of Eldon. Like the Eldon facility, it already had a drainage system in place that was conducive to making dairy products. What will really take us to the next level and allow us to be competitive with large national ice cream brands is our Lebanon, Missouri facility. Um, It'll allow us to produce up to 100 times more ice cream at full capacity in that plant than we are now. This is just a very, very small place compared to where we will be in a few years. Officials in Lebanon are excited for the ice cream factory to come to town and for the 130 new jobs it's projected to create. Brian Thompson, the president and CEO of Lebanon Regional Economic Development, was part of the team that helped bring the business into the community. 
we're very uh, blessed and happy to have them as one of our newest businesses in the community. And in addition to the, you know, getting that new location, the jobs and the investment and all the above, just they, you know, getting to know them, they're very community minded individuals. So I think that's going to, they'll be very active and engaged and that's kind of like icing on the cake or maybe sprinkles on the ice cream. So I think everybody wins in a, in a situation like this. The Imlers believe the Lebanon location will provide a great opportunity for increased ice cream production, as well as an easily accessible stop for motorists to exit the interstate for a sweet treat. With over 12 acres included with the factory, Shannon Imler sees this production facility as the next step towards achieving even larger goals for the company. We're hoping to, you know, eventually be in every state in the United States. And once we do get our Lebanon plant actually making ice cream, because that's our number one goal. You know, we, we can always, we can sell more ice cream, but um, we have to be able to make it, you know, much more efficiently. All right, DC, it is time for Words of the Week. What do you have for us this time? I've got pensions. Is there a specific pension program you want to focus on? Yep, the Missouri State Employees Retirement System, or MOSERS. What's going on with the pension fund now? Governor Mike Parson has pushed for an additional one-time payment of $500 million from the state, in addition to $547 million, which is already set aside for the pension program in the state budget. That would almost double the amount of money the state is allocating for the program. What's the reasoning behind that? Moser's is usually funded by returns on low-volatility bonds. But the program has struggled to generate enough money in recent years, with only 60% of the money promised to retirees currently residing in the program. Just how big of a gap is there between what is owed and what the program has? The program has about $9.5 billion in assets, but that is still $6.2 billion below what the program needs funding-wise. How exactly will $500 million make much of an effect on that, then? The belief is that it would keep the same contribution rate for future payments from the state general allocation fund, which could allow the states to cut into the deficit over time. Lots going on there and definitely a complex topic. Agreed. What is your word of the week, Ian? Mine is anemic. What is that referring to in the context of Missouri? Well, it's a term that was used recently in a story from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch to describe the population growth in St. Louis over the past decade. The metropolitan area, which is home to 2.3 million people, only added about 33,000 people from 2010 to 2020. What are the underlying issues behind this stagnation? The urban core of the population is largely the ones influencing this trend. The city itself lost 18,000 people in the same time period, with 27,000 black residents in particular leaving the city. There's also a much smaller Latino community in St. Louis than in a lot of metropolitan areas, and that community in particular tends to be younger and among one of the faster-growing demographics in the country. How does this compare to a lot of the other metropolitan areas in the country? In all, the area saw 1.2% growth over the last decade. Nationally, the growth rate was 7.4%, so there's a pretty stark difference there. And then when you look at other comparable cities in the Midwest, almost all experienced significantly higher growth rates, including Kansas City, which added 9%. In all, it amounted to St. Louis dropping out of the top 20 metropolitan areas for the first time, with some believing things could get worse. That was going to be my next question. What happens from here? Stalled growth will likely continue unless the city can incentivize people to move here, which starts with investment and development in the city and its surrounding suburbs. 
The problem is that companies and organizations could be turned off by the slow growth and become more hesitant to pump in money to the city. St. Louis leaders are still hopeful, though, and believe federal grants and programs that can target specific refugee or immigrant communities could provide a boost that has effects that can be carried on into the future. It will definitely be interesting to see if the city can continue leaning on the same industries it has, or if it will have to undergo a more thorough reinvention to start to rebound. With our words of the week done, it is now time to move to our closing thought. Here is the president and CEO of Lebanon Regional Economic Development, Brian Thompson, you know, the one of the things I'm really excited about is diversity of job offerings. Uh, of course, we about 26% of our jobs in our uh, regional economy here, specifically our county, are in manufacturing, so in, in production and things like that. So really think of the manufacturing sector. So this will add to that, but will be a little bit diverse. And so I think uh, it will pull from a, maybe help draw from some other areas too, in addition to right here, uh, folks in town, maybe for whatever reason, have have been out of the job cycle here. You know, it's been a crazy couple of years as we've all experienced. So, but it also offered a little different thing. If there's somebody out there that just haven't found their their passion, their niche, you know, maybe this is it. So uh, from a number of different angles, we're very excited about it and what it's going to do for our job market, kind of add a little diversification to us. And of course, uh, this particular project has a very much a, a tourist feel to it as well. There's a combination of production and retail. So uh, excited about it all the way across the board. Well, that is all for this week. Thank you to the M33 Project for providing the music for this episode. For my co-host, Ian Laird, assistant producers Kaylee Anagita and Christian McDonald, and editors Kaylee DeRook, Jack Knowlton, James Marshall, and Wicker Perlis, I'm DC Benincasa. This has been Business Brief. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.